This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 109th edition of the program. Today is August 31st, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of the newest individuals that decided to sign up to support us either through Patreon or PayPal this week. So I want to thank Ariel Nunez, Basil Angelopoulos, Christian Veneman, Edis Worden, Aaron Pimentel, Ian Stratton, Marilyn Pitts, Matthew Castro-Melissa-Mazaros, Michael Leone, Roxanne Tamortash, and Troy. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you too would like to support the show, you can either become a member at humanistreport.com through PayPal, or you could support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, I'll give you an update to the DNC fraud lawsuit, and we'll also talk about whether or not Bernie Sanders thinks Medicare for All is a litmus test. Additionally, in this episode, we'll talk about Hurricane Harvey, prosperity preachers, an attack on Jane Sanders, Joe Arpaio, Howard Dean's arbitrary attack on Jill Stein, and also in this episode, we'll talk about the creative way a pro-net neutrality organization is holding corrupt politicians accountable. And of course, Kamala Harris came out in favor of single pair, so we'll talk about that. And finally, we'll discuss whether or not Trump will end an Obama-era immigration policy known as DACA, and I'll tell you why I don't think he should end this program. So, all these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Uh, first and foremost, before we get started, I just want to send my apologies to individuals that listen to us exclusively via SoundCloud and iTunes. We've had some technical difficulties with the audio version of the podcast, but we're hoping that that gets ironed out very soon. So, uh, bear with us there. But anyways, let's go ahead and jump into the news. Over the weekend, we learned that the DNC fraud lawsuit was, unfortunately, thrown out of court. Now, this ruling came after the DNC filed a motion to dismiss the DNC fraud lawsuit, and ultimately, the judge decided to side with the DNC. And the judge ultimately concluded that the plaintiffs lacked standing. Now, the full ruling is 28 pages long, and I will link to it in the description box. But there's really three main things that I took away from it after reading most of it. First of all, the judge believes that the DNC was biased against Bernie. At least that seems to be the case. Although that's not legally actionable. So even if they were biased, which the judge and the court accepts, well, there's nothing we can do about it legally is pretty much what he is saying here. So even if the DNC charter claims that the organization is neutral. The promise of neutrality isn't legally binding. Now, second of all, the judge argues that there's no concrete injury that was sustained by the plaintiffs. And finally, the DNC's violation of their own charter doesn't constitute fraud because according to the judge, people donating to Bernie Sanders didn't specifically base their decision to donate on the promise of neutrality. Yeah, 
That's a real argument. So here's what Judge Zlock states specifically. In evaluating plaintiff's claims at this stage, the court assumes their allegations are true, that the DNC and Wasserman Schultz held a palpable bias in favor of Clinton and sought to propel her ahead of her Democratic opponents. Plaintiffs assert several fraud-type claims, but they do not allege they ever heard or acted upon the DNC's claims of neutrality. The plaintiffs asserting each of these causes of action specifically allege that they donated to the DNC or to Bernie Sanders' campaign, but not one of them alleges that they ever read the DNC's charter or heard the statements they now claim are false before making their donations, and not one of them alleges that they took action in reliance on the DNC's charter or statements identified in the first amended complaint. Absent such allegations, these plaintiffs lack standing. For their part, the DNC and Wasserman Schultz have characterized the DNC Charter's promise on impartiality and even-handedness as a mere political promise, political rhetoric that is not enforceable in federal courts. Now, finally, Judge Zlotch holds, the act of donating to an organization does not of itself create a legally protected interest in the organization's operations. Okay, so there's a lot. Now, there's actually more accusations that the plaintiffs had um, talked about, but I'm just going to focus on the lack of neutrality and the DNC's violation of their charter, specifically Article 5, Section 4. So, the first thing that I want to go over is that, well, seemingly, the good news is that the judge does seem to side with the plaintiff's claim that the DNC did in fact violate their own charter and that there was a palpable bias. I'll read it again. The DNC and Wasserman Schultz held a palpable bias in favor of Clinton and sought to propel her ahead of her Democratic opponents. Now, as someone who's not a legal expert, when I read that, it seems as though, yeah, the judge does accept the argument that there was a palpable bias in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Bernie Sanders. Uh, but, you know, that's something that's not legally actionable. And I think that that still, even though it's not legally actionable, it's important because Clintonistas will say, well, look, the, the, the primary wasn't rigged, so Bernie Sanders supporters need to stop saying that because this case was thrown out of court. But the judge admitted here that there was palpable bias. So even if we lost this case, that admission is a win in and of itself, in my opinion. Now, I actually want to get to the DNC charter in question. So Article 5, Section 4 reads... In the conduct and management of the affairs and procedures of the Democratic National Committee, particularly as they apply to the preparation and conduct of the presidential nomination process, the chairperson shall exercise impartiality and even-handedness as between the presidential candidates and campaigns. So after reading the DNC charter and hearing the judge say that the DNC chairperson, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, did in fact exercise a palpable bias in favor of Hillary Clinton, I mean, you can't not question how it was the case that he didn't see this as fraud. So, according to the judge, the donation doesn't necessarily make the DNC charter a legally binding contract. In fact, the judge referred to it as a mere political promise, political rhetoric that is not enforceable in federal courts. But this doesn't make sense to me, honestly, because it's obvious that they claim to be neutral because they know that nobody would donate to them if they weren't. Now, another reason why the judge stated that he decided to dismiss this case is because the plaintiffs did not sufficiently demonstrate that they sustained injury 
due to the DNC's rigging of the primaries. Now, this is based on the Luan test. So this is former legal precedent that was set by the Supreme Court, namely the Luan v. Defenders of Wildlife case, which was decided in 1992, and it holds that in order to bring a lawsuit, plaintiffs must suffer a concrete, discernible injury and not one that is conjectural or hypothetical. So the judge argues that the DNC fraud lawsuit doesn't pass this test. So at least from a legal standpoint, I get that. That makes sense to me. I mean, if you're administering this test, uh, I guess you can say that makes sense. But this lawsuit and the ruling specifically really goes off the rails when the judge insists that Bernie Sanders supporters weren't defrauded because we didn't base our decision to donate to Bernie Sanders on the DNC's promise to be neutral. But that's just implied. When you donate to a candidate in a process that you expect to be fair, I mean, neutrality is implied. You're not going to explicitly think, well, I'm only donating because, you know, they're neutral. That's, that's not like a selling point. That's just implied. Elections and people who administer elections are supposed to be neutral. That's the way elections are. So the reason why they say, the reason why the DNC has Article 5, Section 4 is because if they weren't neutral and if they were able to express preferences in the primaries, who would donate to them? Because then everybody knows that the process is inherently unfair. It's rigged. Hillary Clinton and any other candidates in the future would just get an unfair advantage. So in order to lure people into supporting Democratic candidates, they say that they are neutral. So to me, that portion of the ruling, it makes no sense. It's just downright illogical. So in the end, this is this is basically the conclusion. The DNC rigged the primary and they were able to get away with it. They defrauded voters, perhaps not in the legal term, but certainly in the moral term, they defrauded voters. Um, and... Um, they're going to get away with it. They're not going to pay a dime for all the money that they weaseled out of supporters. You know, it it's really frustrating and disheartening because this is just an injustice, right? The fact that Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigned should give you a sense of the gravity of the situation. I mean, this is this is serious. When WikiLeaks released the DNC emails, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to resign. She had no choice because she was exposed as a fraud. Not only did she do everything in her power to limit debates and hide Bernie Sanders away from the public, but I mean, there was a concerted effort within the DNC to sabotage Bernie Sanders. They were trying to sell media talking points about Bernie Sanders that were negative to people in the media. I mean, it's just a great injustice. It's despicable. So, um, you know, it's frustrating that this case was dismissed, but at the same time, what seems to be an admission by the court uh, that, you know, the DNC, there was palpable bias in favor of Hillary Clinton. I think that that's important, although it might just be that the court has to accept that premise based on the plaintiff's accusations since they didn't actually have a trial. But I mean, that's part of it that's frustrating, too, is because, I mean... They didn't even have a trial. Um, they didn't really get to make their case in court. The plaintiffs, that is, that is it was dismissed. The, the lawsuit uh, came up. The DNC was served, and they asked for it to be dismissed, and it was dismissed. So, apparently, political parties are able to rig primaries and get away with it. There's nothing legally that you can do. So, uh, this is a lesson that will be important to us. So, the Democratic Party... Um, yeah, they committed fraud, and they got away with it. They rigged a primary... And they got away with it. I mean, they're paying a political price, but that's not enough. They have to pay a monetary price as well. And certainly, um, you know, in in a roundabout way, they are. Because their donations 
are the lowest they've been since 2003, when a lot of Democrats voted for the Iraq war. So, I mean, you rig the primary, and even if we're not able to sue you, you're still paying for it because people know that you're a fraud, you're still exposed, and what little media attention the DNC fraud lawsuit was able to garner, you know, it sheds light on the fact that, yeah, the DNC did in fact rig the primary. That's inherently anti-democratic when they're supposed to be the Democratic Party. So in the end, very disheartening news, but that shouldn't stop us from fighting for the issues that matter. Single-payer healthcare, uh, tuition-free public colleges and universities, $15 minimum wage, unionization, um, ending U.S. imperialism. We can't lose focus, even though this sucks and it's kind of a blow to morale. We've got to keep going, um, you know, because the Democratic Party, they want us to be demoralized from this ruling. They want us to be discouraged, but we can't because if we are discouraged, if we stop fighting, we give them exactly what they want. And I'm not going to give them what they want because, you know, for too long, they've been getting everything that they want. They've been able to um, betray voters and get away with it. And now they're able to defraud voters and get away with it. But if you think that that's going to stop us from fighting for the issues that are important, you're wrong. You've got another thing coming. Now that Bernie Sanders is touring the country in an effort to promote his upcoming Medicare for All bill, there's a lot of health insurance industry shills within the Democratic Party that are worried that this bill might actually become a litmus test for them. So they're afraid that if Bernie Sanders introduces this bill and they don't co-sponsor this bill, that they might actually face a primary challenger either in 2018 or 2020. And I am here to reassure them that yes, those fears are in fact warranted, and that is the case. If you don't co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, we will be doing everything we can to defeat you and put up someone who actually will co-sponsor this bill. And in fact, just a little over a month ago, I told you about how Amy Valela is challenging Representative Ruben Keewen in Nevada's 4th District, specifically due to his unwillingness to co-sponsor John Conyers' Medicare for All bill. HR 676. Now, when Amy first announced her candidacy on the Humanist Report, I initially predicted that her announcement would send shockwaves through Washington, D.C. because her decision to primary Ruben Kewin, it sends a really big message to other corporate Democrats. Either you support Medicare for All or you can talk to Ruben Kewin and ask him what will happen if you don't. He has some experience in that regard. So shortly after Amy announced her campaign, even though the aggregate Democratic Party is trying to pretend like she doesn't exist, you know that she's got them shook because shortly after we saw a bunch of articles come out saying how Democrats are really worried that Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill will in fact become a litmus test because it will. So when it comes to Medicare for All and its actual sponsor, Bernie Sanders actually was asked whether or not he thinks this bill will be a litmus test. And rather than actually finally showing the Democrats some tough love, he decided to coddle them and tried to assure them that this won't actually be a litmus test. So according to Jacqueline Thompson of The Hill, she reports Senator Bernie Sanders said that supporting a single-payer healthcare system shouldn't be a litmus test for Democrats, but that he believed more members of the party will grow to back the policy in the future. Sanders told the Washington Post that he's building support for his Medicare for All bill, which would institute a single-payer health insurance system. The former presidential candidate's backing for the policy has raised questions about whether or not he and his supporters might launch primary challenges against Democrats who do not back a single-payer plan. 
But Sanders told the Post that health care and support for a single-payer system is just one issue for voters to consider. Is this a litmus test? No, you have to look at where candidates are on many issues, Sanders said. But you're seeing more and more movement toward Medicare for all. When the people are saying we need health care for everyone, as more and more Americans come on board, it will become politically possible. Sanders did predict that Democrats in the future will likely have to back single-payer health care if they want to win elections. Could people run? Sure, Sanders said of Democrats running for office without backing a single-payer system. Do I think they can win without supporting single-payer? I'm skeptical. Among the people who consider themselves progressive, who vote in the primaries, there's clearly movement towards Medicare for all. So Bernie Sanders is wrong here. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Sanders is absolutely wrong. Of course, Medicare for All will be a litmus test. And really, when Bernie Sanders was asked whether or not Medicare for All should be a litmus test, this is what he should have said. He should have said, look, that's not up to me to decide. That's up to voters to decide. Because that's really, that's the truth. Because for me personally, this is my litmus test. I can I can support a candidate that is imperfect. I'm not looking for someone who is 100% pure, right? I mean, I'd love to have a pure candidate, but I know that that's not necessarily possible because I I'm a pretty uh I'm a pretty vocal person, so I am bound to disagree with even the most progressive person on something. But the one issue where I really draw a line in the sand is Medicare for all. If Bernie Sanders all of a sudden turned against Medicare for all, well, even though I agree with him on the overwhelming majority of all the other issues he's talking about, I don't think I'd support him in 2020 if he decided to run because Medicare for all, I mean, I feel as though with this much momentum, certainly more momentum than I've ever seen with regard to Medicare for all, we would be dumb to back down right now. So if progressives with all the movement towards Medicare for all, both politically and socially, I mean, this is a cultural shift that we're seeing. A majority of people in the country support Medicare for all, including a plurality of Republicans. So if we back away now, we're dumb. So for me personally, I absolutely refuse to support any candidate that doesn't support Medicare for all. I will either not vote for them or I'll vote third party. I mean, look, I refuse to back down on an issue that... This is a really difficult issue to pass. I mean, we have an entire industry, the health insurance industry, that is pouring millions of dollars into the campaigns of politicians. They are lobbying politicians. So this is a really tough battle. So we absolutely have to be ruthless and we cannot back down. Our support for Medicare for all has to be unequivocal. So Bernie Sanders is 100% wrong here. And the thing that frustrates me about what Bernie Sanders is uh, saying here is that he knows that Medicare for all will be a litmus test because he tacitly admitted that it will be one in the future, at least. He said, well, I mean, if, if candidates want to win without supporting Medicare for all, I'm skeptical that they're actually going to be electorally successful. So, I mean, that's a tacit admission that, yeah, this this really is a litmus test. But I mean, he really wants to reassure corporate Democrats that, uh, you know, they can still win if they don't get on board with Medicare for all. And certainly that's possible. It, that may be the case that they may actually win without supporting Medicare for all. But when it comes to progressives and winning them over, it's not going to happen. So Bernie Sanders, it's time for him to toughen up and start actually being a dick. But I already know why he's doing this. This is a political move. Bernie Sanders doesn't want to be responsible for the Democratic Party losing in 2018 and possibly 2020. So he is trying to do everything in his power to work with the Democrats to try to reassure them, look, I'm, we're making progress. You just got to do this. 
and, and it's it's frustrating. You need to stop being nice with them. Either they support Medicare for all or they lose their election and we'll we'll primary them. So look, at the end of the day, it's a litmus test whether they want to <laughs> acknowledge that or not. Because I'm not voting for anyone who uh, doesn't support Medicare for all. And I know a lot of people agree with me here because I'm not backing down when we have this much momentum. I'd be stupid to do that. I think it's reasonable for us to demand that we have the same type of healthcare system that all other modern nations have. The time for Medicare for all is long overdue. And if you don't support it, I don't support you. It's that simple. In a surprising turn of events, Medicare for all got an unlikely ally recently. That individual is Kamala Harris. She announced recently that she supports Medicare for All. So she was initially asked this question at a town hall, whether or not she would support it, um, and she came out in favor of it unequivocally. So she states that she supports it because it's the right thing to do, and she also announced that she will be co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill because healthcare is a right. So um, when I saw this announcement, um, she absolutely earned my respect. Absolutely. Because you have to give politicians credit where credit is due. This is exactly what we wanted them to do. And really, she she went a step further than Kirsten Gillibrand. She not only announced her support for Medicare for All, but she announced her intentions to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. This is really big. Now, if, if you're skeptical, you're not alone. I'm still skeptical about her true intentions. I mean, I think this is probably a political calculation, but we have to give politicians credit when they do what we want them to do, because otherwise, if we continue to shit on them after they do what we want, then other politicians will think, well, if I'm not going to win over progressives, then why would I even try? So I think that, one, we need to give her credit, but still, we have to hold her accountable and make sure that she does actually fight for it uh, and that she does, in fact, co-sponsor this bill. Uh, and I think it's absolutely great. And the message that this sends, to me at least, is that when we put pressure on politicians, that works. So to everyone who is bemoaning purity tests, to everyone who states that we're being too hard on people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, we're not. Because by putting pressure on these politicians and holding them to a higher standard that Democrats are used to being held to, we are changing the country. We're getting the entire party little by little to move to the left because we already know that a majority of House Democrats support Medicare for All. They've co-sponsored John Conyers' bill, H.R. 676, and now it's the case that the dominoes are starting to fall in the Senate. This is great news. And again, if you're a progressive and you're skeptical here, I'm with you. I'm with you here. You know, what's... I'm thinking, what's her ulterior motive? Because we've all been screwed over by Democrats before. And if Kamala Harris really wants to win over progressives, then the next big thing that she can do is not have a super PAC and also immediately cease taking money from billionaires and large multinational corporations. Now, in a perfect world, I would encourage her to return the money that she gave to uh all of your corporate donors, but I know it's probably already spent. So I would I would be perfectly fine with her saying from this point for going forward, I'm not taking any more corporate money. I would be I would be perfectly fine with that. Uh, but look, what she's doing now, this is good. This is a good move. This is what we want her to do. Hopefully, other people in Congress will do the same thing and follow her lead. And look. This just shows the Bernie Sanders effect is strong. Say what you will about Bernie, even if you don't agree with him on everything, uh, even if his foreign policies aren't very great, admittedly, 
on domestic policy, he's fighting for us. He's fighting for you and I. And the pressure that he consistently puts on the Democratic Party establishment, it may seem like it's not making a difference, but it really is. So kudos to Kamala Harris. Credit where credit is due. If you want to earn the respect of progressives and win them over, this is the way you do it. So other politicians should take note. Look, maybe it, maybe this is uh, based exclusively on political expediency, but she took it a step further, which really impressed me. She didn't just come out in favor of Medicare for All. I mean, again, she stated that she's going to be co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' bill. That's great news. So good for you, Kamala Harris. You know, what little we know about her record, it was negative up until this point. But it looks as if she's actually listening to the criticism that she's received. Um, and she is taking the advice of progressives. So to all the neoliberal shills like Neera Tandon, Joanne Reed, Howard Dean, who said that we shouldn't criticize Democrats, you're wrong. And this proves it right here. Former DNC chair and current health industry lobbyist Howard Dean has once again embarrassed himself by attacking another progressive. And certainly him, as well as other neoliberals like Neera Tandon, Joan Walsh, they continue to attack Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders supporters, and they continue to lower the bar. But I think that Howard Dean, he lowered the bar yet again, and now he is pushing conspiracy theories in an attempt to attack progressives. So he has a new target. This time it is Jill Stein. So he tweeted out the now infamous picture of Jill Stein who shared a table with former National Security Director Michael Flynn and Russian President Vladimir Putin. And he stated, guess who came to dinner with Flynn and Putin? He then followed up that tweet by saying, this is a shocker. Stein was likely part of the Russian effort to elect Trump. Had Stein not been on the ballot, we might not have Trump. <laughs> now, finally, he concludes by calling on Robert Mueller to investigate Jill Stein, stating, hopefully Mueller is investigating Stein too. Where did the money come from to get her on the ballot? We know RT supported her. And when he says RT supported her, he means that progressives on RT, like Lee Camp, who is, I mean, Lee Camp is a liberal activist in the United States. He supported Jill Stein and he has a show on RT. So by Lee Camp supporting her, that everyone at RT supports her, even though people like Tom Hartman actually did not like Jill Stein whatsoever. And I think arbitrarily attacked Jill Stein on a number of issues. So, but you know, <laughs> who cares about facts when uh, conspiracy theories helps drive your point home? Now, the thing about neoliberals is that all of a sudden, they are calling on anyone who they don't like to be investigated. And I'm saying this not because Howard Dean is saying this about Jill Stein. I mean, centrist Democrats, like Republicans, are also cheerleading on the investigation into Jane Sanders based on bogus bank fraud allegations that were spearheaded by Trump's campaign manager in Vermont. So they like smearing people who they disagree with. They like launching investigations into people who are political opponents. Now, Howard Dean is actually late to the party, and fortunately for him, Jill Stein has already been looped into the widening Russia probe, so he already got what he wanted. But we'll get to that in a bit. Now, Jill Stein, of course, did respond to Howard Dean, saying our campaign was funded by small donors in the United States. This is public info, but don't let facts stop you from spreading conspiracy theories, Howard. And she's correct. This is a conspiracy theory because at this point, there is no tangible evidence to confirm that 
Jill Stein was a Russian plant or a Donald Trump shill. There's no evidence. And now all of a sudden, Jill Stein has been put in this weird position to where she is essentially forced to defend a negative. She's supposed to prove that she isn't a shill for Russia when you can't prove a negative. I mean, the onus is on you. If you're saying that she is a Russian plant, then you have to provide us with the evidence. It's not up to her to prove that she is not a Russian plant. The onus for evidence is on you, and no, that picture doesn't count as sufficient evidence. Now, when she says that, you know, her campaign contributions are public information, that's true. If you run for any seat in the United States, your campaign contributions are publicly accessible information. Now, comparatively, Jill Stein didn't actually raise that much money. She didn't have a super PAC, so that's understandable. And there were very few people that actually maxed out their $2,700 contribution to her. I mean, the majority of her donations were actually less than $200. And in total, she raised just over $3.2 which that's nothing when you compare it to other presidential campaigns. So, I mean, her funding method was comparable to Bernie Sanders in that she only accepted grassroots donations, uh, funding from individual donors, uh, and she didn't have a PAC, she didn't accept PAC money, but when you look at the list of people that contributed to her and people, you know, the companies that contributed to her, absent from that list is Vladimir Putin, Russia, the Kremlin, uh, any Donald Trump-affiliated organization, and if you don't believe me, check it out, because this is all public information. But Howard Dean was too lazy to check for himself, and he just wanted to smear anyone that decided to run against Hillary Clinton. Now, we know this because Jill Stein isn't his first victim. He also attacked Bernie Sanders before, too, when he was running against Hillary Clinton. And what's funny to me is that Jill Stein ran for president in 2012 as well, with Sherry Honkala as her running mate, but they only care about Jill Stein now that they lost. And the reason why they care about Jill Stein is because since they lost, you know, they can't blame themselves for not appealing to enough voters. They can't be introspective. So instead, Jill Stein is just a fantastic scapegoat. I mean, if you're running against Hillary Clinton when we have a monster like Donald Trump on the ballot, I mean, you're to blame for her losing, right? It's not that she refused to campaign in Wisconsin. It's not that the DNC rigged the primary in her favor, which disenfranchised millions of Bernie Sanders supporters. It's not that Hillary Clinton was grossly out of touch with millennials and, you know, the greater public. No, it's because of Jill Stein. Even though she got 1% of the vote, we should blame her for Hillary Clinton. That's what they're trying to do. All the Democratic Party shills and loyalists have is uh, lies and obfuscation. That's how they make themselves feel better for running a shitty campaign themselves. But I want to get to Howard Dean's so-called piece of evidence that Jill Stein was a Russian plant. It's because of this picture. Now, personally, if I were Jill Stein, I would not have attended this conference. And that's not just because I rarely leave my house because I'm a homebody and play video games all day when I have time. But it's because, I mean, the optics were objectively bad. But to be fair to Jill Stein, this was a conference for RT that occurred back in 2015. So she probably couldn't have predicted that Democrats would go full Neil McCarthy by the end of 2016. And according to her, she wanted to speak with Putin to get him to rethink his decision to be more involved in Syria. And I mean, if she really was teaming up with Putin, one thing that I don't understand is why she would be at this event taking selfies on her phone. Why would she be seen with Putin in public? Why wouldn't she just have meetings with him behind the scenes? Because I mean, if it comes out that she did collude with him to tip the election in Donald Trump's favor, then why would <laughs> why would she want this 
to ultimately be used against her. It's because <laughs> there's no evidence that she is a Russian plant. She was just there because of RT's anniversary. And the reason why she is there at this conference is because people on RT like Lee Camp like Jill Stein. So um, I'm going to let Jill Stein explain why she was there for herself. I wanted to ask you about that famous photo um, that is the bane of Trump's existence, the former Trump national security adviser Michael Flynn and the Russian president Vladimir Putin together in 2015 at a dinner in Moscow. Um, you also, Jill, were at that dinner, and you were actually in that photograph at that head table. So, um, to say the least, you had a bird's eye view. What were you doing there? So I was there, actually, to deliver the—one of the main messages of my campaign, which is that uh, war has failed in the Middle East and that we need a uh, peace offensive consisting of a weapons embargo and a uh, freeze on the funding, the bank accounts of those countries that are sponsoring terrorism. At the time, uh, Russia had just begun to bomb. Syria. And my message was that Russia was following in the disastrous footsteps of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. But how did you end up at that table? This so, is the head table. That's right. I knew I was going to be at the head table. All of the uh, foreign uh, diplomats were seated at the head table. Unfortunately, there was no interpreter at the head table, and there were no introductions made. Uh, Vladimir Putin came in— And this in... was a, a celebration of 10 years of Russia Today, the— um... Well, it was a celebration, but it was also a conference. And there was media there, actually, from all over the world, including U.S. media, uh, Canadian, um, you know, Chinese, et cetera. It was a real chance to uh, lift up a different point of view about U.S. foreign policy, as well as uh, Russian foreign policy to a broader audience. On that same trip— So you didn't get a chance to talk with Putin, then? <laughs> not a word. I was hoping to deliver my message to Putin, but there was no interpreter. He walked in with a group of people that I thought were his bodyguards. It turns out they actually were his head of communications, his chief of staff, et cetera. But you wouldn't have known it. I spent the evening—well, I spent the dinner talking to the German diplomat to, uh, to my right. He was the only person who spoke English that was in earshot of me. Um, and, you know, my and your assessment of what has been made of that, and, of course, ultimately, Mike Flynn was forced out as national security advisor? Yes. Well, you know, bear in mind that Mike Flynn has many uh, contacts to Russia and, in fact, was paid $40,000, uh, which he accepted from the Russian government. I wasn't paid a penny, and I declined uh, sponsorship for my transportation, my room and my board. So, you know, I went there absolutely without any um, conflicts of interest or encumbrances. Um, you know, but it, it's like nothing happened at that dinner. Seconds. Nothing happened at that dinner. Michael Flynn has his own issues uh, going on with Russia. You know, I can say that, uh, for my own part, that picture circulates without a single fact. Uh, I was there with a number of peace uh, advocates who uh, you know, unfortunately, we have to turn to Russian TV and to democracy now, but there are very few TV stations that, that cover uh, peace candidates. I was there with Rocky Anderson and Ray uh, McGovern. The mayor of Salt Lake City. So there you have it. Now, I'm going to let you decide for yourself whether or not you believe Jill Stein. I personally do. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to actually assume and be extra kind to Howard Dean here and assume that uh, Jill Stein was, in fact, a plant, hypothetically speaking. Bear with me here, because even though teaming up with Vladimir Putin would go against everything that uh, she's stood for for her entire life, I mean, let's assume that she was nonetheless paid off by Vladimir Putin.
So if she was a plant for Vladimir Putin, then wouldn't it still be embarrassing for Democrats that a plant ran a campaign that was more in tune with the American electorate than Hillary Clinton? I mean, a lot of people, in fact, there are some polls that show that most people only voted for Hillary Clinton to defeat Donald Trump, meaning she didn't really have a message that resonated with voters. So if enough people supposedly risked spoiling the election, um, even though there was a monster like Donald Trump, to vote for Jill Stein, doesn't that imply that she's doing something right? If she's a Russian puppet, isn't it embarrassing that a Russian puppet is more in touch with the American people than both political parties? I mean, think about it. Furthermore, Hillary Clinton was already loathed by the electorate, and in the absence of Jill Stein, I personally still wouldn't have voted for Hillary Clinton because I don't vote for cheaters. And look, it's not like I started this election from a purely screw Hillary Clinton stance because reluctantly I was prepared to support Hillary Clinton uh, before I knew Bernie Sanders was going to get into the race, but it was how she decided to rail against Medicare for all and say that single payer will never ever come to pass. And then uh, we found out that the DNC rigged the primaries in favor of her. I mean, she she turned me against her even more. And that's really the problem with Hillary Clinton. The more she speaks, the more people dislike her. But when she goes away, her approval rating actually improves. So, and, and I'm not alone here. So, Hillary Clinton lost because of Hillary Clinton. We need to stop obfuscating and blaming others and scapegoating Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders supporters and Bernie bros. It's time that people like Howard Dean and other neoliberal centrist Democratic Party shills wake up and realize that they don't have a message that resonates. Nobody really knows what they stand for. We know that the Democratic Party is against Donald Trump, but we don't know what policies they actually advocate for. So, Hillary lost because of Hillary Clinton. Democrats are wiped out because of Democrats. So if you can't figure that out and realize that this wasn't the first election that they lost and that you're to blame, then uh, you're never going to win any election again because you're just too dense to realize that, yeah, you've got a problem. You're not perfect. And no, Jill Stein didn't cost you the election. And of course, she wasn't a Russian plant. If you think that's the case, then provide us with some actual evidence. So, as you all know, President Donald Trump recently announced that he would be pardoning the overtly racist, criminal, and corrupt sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, Joe Arpaio. And for someone who should be in a jail cell right now, he is going to be running for Congress soon. I'm not kidding. 85-year-old Joe Arpaio, who, by the way, as recently as December, claimed that he had proof that Barack Obama was born in Kenya, uh, running against Jeff Flake for uh, the United States Senate seat in Arizona in 2018. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, it would be quite a race, that's for sure. Uh, I actually interviewed Sheriff Arpaio uh, over the weekend, uh, and, and he said, look, I, he's a free man now, but he's not going away. He very much wants to stay involved in politics and, and seems to be sort of hungering for another race. Yeah, so that's actually happening. Now, when I say he's overtly racist, Really, that's an oversimplification because Joe Arpaio is not just racist. I mean, he is someone who is arguably evil, he is corrupt, um, and now he's going to be running for Congress. He'll fit right in, I'm sure. <laughs> but when it comes to why Donald Trump decided to pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio, he states, he has done a lot in the fight against illegal immigration. He's a great American patriot, and I hate to see what has happened to him. Oh, okay, so according to Donald Trump, it's Joe Arpaio who's the actual victim here. It's not the opposite. He hasn't victimized countless people in Maricopa County, Arizona. It's that he's the victim, right? 
So let's learn about what he did to, quote, fight immigration in Arizona. So according to Brian Toshman of the ACLU, he reports Arpaio was recently convicted of criminal contempt after he deliberately violated an earlier court ruling that ordered his department to end its practice of illegally detaining people based only on suspicions about their immigration status. That ruling came in a successful case brought by Latino residents to challenge Arpaio's racial profiling policy. In traffic stops, workplace raids, and neighborhood sweeps, Arpaio ordered deputies to target residents solely based on their ethnicity, often detaining people without reasonable suspicion that they were violating any laws that his office was allowed to enforce. In the civil rights case against Arpaio, the federal court found that Arpaio systematically targeted Latinos for traffic stops and illegally detained them. After he was ordered to stop his illegal immigration policies, Arpaio deliberately left his unconstitutional practices in place, leading first to a civil contempt proceeding and then to his contempt conviction. The people of Maricopa County paid the price for Arpaio's pursuit of illegal immigration enforcement policies, suffering damage to community safety. In 2011, the Associated Press found that Opio's office ignored hundreds of sex crime cases, including cases of alleged child abuse. One officer told the AP that many of those cases involved the children of undocumented immigrants. Now, that's not all. So besides racial profiling, Joe Opio also oversaw really brutal and just downright inhumane jail conditions. They were comparable to concentration camps. Now, when I compare them to concentration camps, I'm not being hyperbolic because that's how he describes them. Arpaio is best known for establishing Tent City, a sprawling outdoor detention center which he once positively compared to a concentration camp. Temperatures in Tent City, which is surrounded by an electrocuted fence, could reach up to 141 degrees. One detainee said, Life in Tent City felt like you are in a furnace. People held there were primarily Latinos. He called it the tent where all the Mexicans are and were put into chain gangs and subjected to humiliating practices like public parades. Women of color in Arpaio's jails were particularly mistreated. The Justice Department discovered cases where Latina detainees were denied basic sanitary items and were forced to remain with sheets or pants soiled from menstruation or were put into solitary confinement for extended periods of time because of their inability to understand and thus follow a command given in English. In what was called the biggest misspending of state funds in the history of Arizona, Arpaio's department misappropriated tens of millions of taxpayers' dollars meant to improve the county's jails and used the money to conduct immigration sweeps, investigate Arpaio's critics, and pay for personal travel. People in Arpaio's jails were subject to substandard health care, sometimes to the point of extreme suffering, even death. The ACLU challenged Arpaio over his failure to meet the health needs of people in his jails and won in court when a federal judge agreed that the deficient and dangerous health care system violated detainees' constitutional right to adequate care. Detainees with mental illnesses were especially victimized in Arpaio's jails. Neglect appeared to be standard procedure in Arpaio's jails. When a diabetic detainee who had not received insulin shots began vomiting and having seizures, she was roundly ignored by jail staff. Eventually, one guard simply moved her into another room to muffle her cries for help. The Phoenix New Times also discovered that people hanged themselves in the sheriff's jail 
at a rate that dwarfs other county lockups, comparing the medical care found at county jails to those of prisoner of war camps. This is absolutely unthinkable, but if you think that's all that's wrong about Joe Arpaio, <laughs> there's a lot more because he's also corrupt. And when I say he's corrupt, I'm not saying corrupt in the standard political sense where multinational corporations bribe politicians for policy concessions. I mean, I'm talking about a level of corruption that you usually only see in fiction, in movies, in books. So Arpaio was known to intimidate supposed enemies, including a judge's spouse, a political rival, a county official, and a reporter. The Justice Department also found that his office engaged in a pattern or practice of retaliating against individuals for exercising their First Amendment right to free speech as deputies tried to silence individuals who have publicly spoken out and participated in protected demonstrations against Arpaio. In one infamous case, People working under Arpaio staged an assassination attempt against him in order to boost his popularity, framing an innocent man in the process. He spent four years in jail waiting to clear his name and eventually received a $1.1 million settlement. While Trump seems to think that Arpaio is the victim, a presidential pardon for the former sheriff would just be the latest injustice to befall the countless people wronged by his years of racism, lawlessness, and abuse. This is the individual that Donald Trump decided to pardon. There are thousands upon thousands of people locked up in jail right now for nonviolent crimes because they uh, were smoking marijuana or they were selling marijuana. But of all the people in the world, Donald Trump decided to pardon perhaps one of the most evil. And on top of that, it's not just that he pardoned him and, you know, admitted, well, you know, he has he has his faults, but overall he's a good person. I know him personally. I think he has a good heart. No, Donald Trump painted him as the victim. And basically what Donald Trump implied was that Joe Arpaio, I mean, he was the victim of a political witch hunt because he was against Obama because, surprise, surprise, he was also a birther. So since Joe Arpaio you know, is another birther, is a fellow birther, Donald Trump, you know, he can empathize with him and empathize with the criticism that Joe Arpaio received and decided to pardon him. Now, this is despicable. Donald Trump, I mean, in getting in bed with racists, overt racists who are just downright corrupt, Donald Trump is showing that uh, he's no different. You're the same as the company you keep. Now, people are saying that, you know, this was kind of a signal to Trump allies that, you know, if anything goes south in the Robert Mueller investigation, that, you know, he might be inclined to pardon them too. But the fact that he did this is just, it's unforgivable. This is one of the most disgusting things that Donald Trump did. Joe Arpaio arguably committed crimes against humanity, and he shouldn't be running for Congress right now. He should be in jail. After President Trump decided to pardon the overtly racist former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, Joe Arpaio, well, one journalist decided to use this as an opportunity to smear Jane Sanders in perhaps the most arbitrary, disingenuous way possible. So it all started when Bernie Sanders released a tweet responding to Donald Trump's decision, saying, by pardoning Sheriff Arpaio, President Trump has once again made clear where he stands on the side of racism and discrimination. Now, after Bernie Sanders made this statement, New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman responded by saying, Worth recalling that Jane Sanders appeared with Arpaio once and toured his tent jail. Now, in the absence of context, one might think, 
Well, that's kind of strange. Why would someone like Jane Sanders, who is a progressive, want to be associated with someone like Joe Arpaio? Why would she want anything to do with his jail? But when you actually have the context, well, it becomes clear. Matthew Decim of Slate explains, if the idea of Jane Sanders endorsing America's most racist cop seems a little unlikely to you, you have a better nose for fake news than many of Haberman's Twitter followers. So before Jane Sanders' love of Sheriff Joe joins the fake news hall of fame, it's worth pointing out how disingenuous Haberman's tweet is. It is true that Jane Sanders appeared with Joe Arpaio, but only in the same sense it is true that Hillary Clinton appeared publicly more than once with Donald Trump. In fact, far from the meet and greet Haberman implies, Jane Sanders was looking at Arpaio's infamous tent city, an outdoor prison where the temperatures hit 130 degrees in the summer from outside the fences at the behest of immigration rights group Puente, Arizona. Arpaio, sensing a publicity opportunity, ambushed her and offered her a tour. She accepted, and maybe she shouldn't have, but their conversation wasn't particularly friendly. Jane states, You feel that this is humane? The way you... And he chimed in, saying, Yeah, it's about 130 degrees during the summer. Well, let me ask you this, says Jane, and 135 degrees in Iraq, drawing an equivalence there. And Jane Sanders responded by saying, Yeah, well... And Arpaio said, So what's wrong with that? Jane Sanders replied, Well, the jails are supposed to treat our people humanely. Arpaio said, I haven't had any problem. Now, within days, at a rally in Phoenix, Bernie Sanders called Arpaio a bully and described his wife's encounter with him like this. She asked him about racial profiling and he didn't have an answer. She asked him about conditions in Tent City and other abuses that he has perpetuated and he didn't have an answer. You know what? He cannot have an answer because what he is doing is un-American and uncivilized. So, with the proper context, we now know... Uh, that it's clear Jane Sanders wasn't there to socialize with Joe Arpaio. She's no fan of Joe Arpaio. She was there with Puente, Arizona, an immigration organization, and he's the one who happened to amb ambush her when she was looking at Tent City. She wasn't looking there and telling him that he was doing a great job with Tent City. She was talking about how inhumane it was. She was lambasting him for his decision. So... Of course, Maggie Haberman, after she received backlash, rightfully so, for releasing this disingenuous tweet, she followed up with another tweet saying, You could look at my Twitter feed for later tweets that clarified something clumsily phrased but not ill-intended. So, I'm glad that she admitted that this was clumsily phrased, to say the least, but I... I'm not inclined to believe you, Maggie, that this was ill-intended, because you're a journalist. Your job is to write, so if you can't even get your point across that is a simple point. In fact, I don't even know why you would bring up this to begin with, because Bernie Sanders is calling out Joe Arpaio's racism, and you're saying, well, Jane Sanders was seen with Joe Arpaio. I mean, what was the point of bringing it up if not to uh, prime your Twitter followers into thinking, well, maybe since she is associated with Joe Arpaio and she was with him publicly once and they talked, maybe she sides with him. I mean, that was the point of your tweet, was it not? It seemed like you wanted to imply that Jane Sanders got buddy-buddy with Joe Arpaio. And one Clinton surrogate actually described the encounter as Jane Sanders, quote, playing nice with Joe Arpaio. So it's not like this type of smear is anything new. In fact, this exact smear was already used against Jane Sanders. So you can criticize Jane Sanders if you want to for not being tough enough on Joe Arpaio. I mean, nobody can really be tough enough on him. He's a monster. But to say that she's playing nice with him or to imply that her association with him that one time makes her 
a friend of Joe Arpaio or a supporter of his tactics is downright wrong. It's it's disingenuous. But I think that Maggie Hagerman is smarter than she's letting on. I think she knows that her tactic was, in fact, disingenuous. And the whole reason why she brought it up is because she wants us to assume that Jane Sanders is an ally of Joe Arpaio's. It's a disingenuous and, frankly, sleazy way to try to smear the wife of a senator that might be running for president in 2020 on a platform that you probably don't like. Well, look, here's the deal. If you don't like Jane Sanders, if you don't like Bernie Sanders, then you've got to come up with policies to counter his policy ideas. These smears that are unfounded and ruthless are really getting old to me because it's the same tactic that neoliberals use against progressives all the time. I mean, we saw how the Democratic Party establishment, they couldn't really counter with what Bernie Sanders was saying because all the policy ideas he was espousing were popular. So they just tried to smear him as a racist and a sexist Bernie bro, or they tried to smear him as a racist and a sexist and us as racist, sexist Bernie bros. But I mean, look, you, you've got to counter with policies, but since they can't, they resort to these smears. So I'm not buying what Maggie is selling. I think that she intended to imply that Jane Sanders was somehow fond of Joe Arpaio. She didn't give you the context specifically because she wanted you to think about Jane Sanders negatively. We're on to your tactics. It's what many journalists have done to smear Bernie Sanders arbitrarily so, um, and I don't believe you. Sorry. So if you're a televangelist, a prosperity preacher, or a mega church pastor, then you've probably had a pretty difficult week because... You know, to your dismay, more and more people are waking up to the fact that religion is bullshit, uh, prosperity preachers are scam artists, and more and more people are moving away from religion. But the reason why these individuals are having a particularly bad week is because a lot of them have been exposed as the frauds that they are. Now, the first one is Joel Olstein. Now, Joel Olstein is known for his more... I guess you would say, unorthodox way of delivering God's message. So, for example, he tweeted out, You've got to give God permission to increase you. Stretch your faith. The only thing that limits him is your ability to receive. Not talking about a butthole. Talking about faith. Now, he also tweeted out and almost immediately deleted this gem, which states, A true friend walks in when everybody else walks out. A true friend doesn't rub it in. <laughs> A true friend doesn't rub it in when you make a mistake. They rub it out. And my favorite, which is so absurd, I honestly don't even know if it's real or not, is the advice he gives here. Do not swallow anything Satan is trying to ram down your throat. <laughs> Do not swallow anything Satan is trying to ram down your throat. Jesus comes first. Now, I'm about 60% sure that that's not a real quote from him, but the fact that there's even a question reflects more poorly on Joel Olstein than me not knowing whether or not it's a real quote or not, because the way, again, like I said, the way that he delivers God's message is, is very strange. It's almost as if there's this hidden agenda there. He wants to get you to think about something else. The reason why Joel Olstein has been in the news this week is because he was shamed into doing what he preaches we all should do. So as you all know, Hurricane Harvey is wreaking havoc in Houston, and since his church is located in Houston, and since he has a gigantic church, mind you, he could have been housing a lot of people who 
lost their homes due to all the flooding that Hurricane Harvey caused, but he basically offered to just pray for them instead. But once he was sufficiently shamed enough, then he finally decided to then open his doors to the people. So the mere fact that you have to shame a Christian, an actual rich Christian who has the ability to help lots of people, into doing something that he should have just thought to do himself is absurd to me. But he's not alone because there's another preacher who was exposed this week. And I'm talking about Pat Robertson of The 700 Club. He's been the host of this show for possibly thousands of years. We don't know, but he's been doing this for a really long time. And Pat Robertson, he's less of a preacher and he's more of a Fox News light host. He's more of a propagandist for the Republican Party, but nonetheless, a former producer of his program named Terry Heaton decided to reveal Pat Robertson's true colors. So Pat Robertson is a scam artist. He tricks believers into thinking that they'll be blessed by God if they donate their hard-earned cash to the 700 Club. So Vox explains, often, Heaton writes, the desire to put on a convincing show for their audience meant eliding the truth in favor of a more marketable approach casting only conventionally attractive and successful-looking Christians in their segments, exclusively focusing on the positive aspects of Christianity, and hinting that faith could bring temporal as well as spiritual rewards. Terry also explains, We were always trying to create segments that were vehicles for Pat's teaching. In surveys, that's what our viewers wanted more than anything else. So, for example, we had this idea to do a series featuring a guy who always got things wrong so that Pat could then come on afterward and tell people what to do right. So we developed a new segment. The conceit was a character who always did things wrong so Pat could come out and teach him. The pilot was a guy who was constantly losing money because he was trying to give his way out of debt. So he'd look at the Bible where it says you receive a hundredfold for what you give and if he was $1,000 in debt, he'd give away 100 expecting to be able to pay off the debt. And at the end, he turns to the camera and says, what am I doing wrong? And we all thought it was brilliant. It was, but I showed it to Pat in the dressing room one day and he got this sour look on his face and when it was finished, he said, you put that on the air and you will cost this ministry millions. I knew that Pat's rationale for all of this is that you don't want to do anything on TV that will interfere with anybody's faith, but I think you can take that to an extreme. And that's what we did. We always showed people getting healed and overcoming the odds. The strong impression that the viewer would get from the program was that if you just followed the formula, you would be blessed. There was only one time we did a program about things not going right. It was a program about death, and it was one of the most powerful shows we did. Anyone who worked on it will tell you that. But Pat hated it because it wasn't, quote, prosperity, and everything's going to work out just fine. So the implication here is that the 700 Club is under pressure to do more peachy keen segments to where they say, you know, if you, if you just give it all to God, if you donate 10% of what you earn to uh, your church or maybe the 700 club well you might get that blessing returned to you by god i mean this is this is literally what they sell and of course pat robertson being a businessman running a business that is the 700 club he was concerned with their money which is why he was apprehensive to greenlight a segment that could potentially cost his ministry millions according to 
his analysis. But I mean, as time went on, you could really tell that the 700 Club just kind of stopped giving a shit. And they were just overt in suggesting that if you donate to the 700 Club specifically, not even your church anymore, to the 700 Club, then you will get a blessing from God in return. You don't have money? That's fine. Just give it up. Give it all to God. Give at least 10% and God will bless you. He will take care of you. And they always reinforce this idea by showing Christians who did just that on the show. And look, hey, I'm I'm speaking from firsthand experience because when I was an early teen and I was a Christian and I was raised in the church and I watched the 700 Club unironically, I remember even thinking to myself, even though I bought into Christianity, I thought, I could see how someone might be turned off by this because it seems as if they're trying to manipulate people into giving them money and promising them a blessing in exchange for donating to the 700 Club. There's still people who buy into this, who think that if they donate their hard-earned cash to the 700 Club, that they're going to get a blessing in return. But if you believe that, let me ask you this. Why is it that you only have to donate to the 700 Club? Why can't you donate to the Red Cross? Why can't you take 10% of your income and give it to a homeless person on the street? Why does it have to be to your church, or specifically, in this case, the 700 Club? I never understood that. And it didn't make sense. But Joel Olstein, Pat Robertson, these aren't the only people whose true colors were revealed this week because in a discussion on his show, Jim Baker, another prosperity preacher, was talking about how Christians would respond if Donald Trump got impeached. And <laughs> the clip was insane. Uh, you know, it speaks for itself. Jim Clement, before he died, he prophesied they will be screaming impeachment, impeachment, but it You're will not kidding. happen. That's true. Kim Clement prophesied. Well, I'll tell you what, I will predict if it happens, there will be a civil war in the United States of America. The Christians will finally come out of the shadows because we, we are going to be shut up permanently if we're not careful. And God says faith without works is dead. That's right. We have to do things. God has been dealing with me, and I don't know about you. Yes. It's time for preachers like you, you're doing it, to stand up yes. and shout out. Yes. There will be a civil war if Trump is impeached. So is that a threat? Are you trying to incite violence on your show? Are you trying to encourage all of your Christian viewers to take up arms if Donald Trump is impeached? Is that what you're doing? Because it seems like it, and really Christians should be the last people in favor of a civil war. Because if you're truly a Christian, then you should believe in Jesus's message, which is, uh, turn the other cheek. So, hypothetically speaking, if I wanted to slap Jim Baker across the face, then as a Christian, he should turn the other cheek and allow me to slap him again. That's what you do if you're a Christian. Now, I don't want to slap anybody, but <laughs> that's what God's message is. That's what the message of uh, Jesus Christ was turn the other cheek. So it doesn't mean that you wage war. You try to stop war. You're a pacifist. But, I mean, Jim Baker here, he's talking about how Christians are being silenced. He's perpetuating this ridiculous Christian persecution complex, which is the oldest meme in the book. And even though Christians make up 70% of the country, they're in control of the White House, Congress, um, they hold a majority of governorships in the country, the Republicans, he thinks that they're persecuted. And look, this is, a, as, as someone who grew up as a Christian in the church, 
we are taught that we are victims, that we're persecuted. So this this isn't surprising to me. But the fact that he is saying that Christians, of all people, would wage a civil war to defend the pussy grabber in chief is absurd to me. So in the end, all of these charlatans were exposed this week, and I absolutely love it. Now look, even if I'm personally against religion, I would never ban religion for anyone. That goes without saying, because I believe in freedom. And certainly, if you if you are personally religious and you don't try to push your views on other people and you really truly believe that it helps you you know if, if it helps you with depression or some other issue then go for it but i do want you to know that if you do follow any of these charlatans any televangelists any prosperity preacher any mega church pastor they don't care about religion they don't care about god they care about making money because they're running a business. They don't care about you. They don't care about the message that they're talking about. All they want to do is make money and you are a means to that end. So don't let them take advantage of you. If you are a believer in God, if you're a Christian, understand that their agenda is to make money. I wanted to take a moment to reflect on Hurricane Harvey and just say that to anyone who was affected by the hurricane, if you've lost your home, uh, if you've lost a loved one, I am so sorry. My heart completely goes out to you because, I mean, the seriousness of this hurricane can't be overstated. And uh, it's just looking at some of the photos that are coming out of Houston, it it's so heartbreaking. I mean, you've got the Houston Convention Center packed with 9,000 people. And uh, when you look at some of the before and after images of Houston before the storm and then Houston after the storm, it really gives you a sense as to just how serious the storm actually is. So, I mean, we can't leave fellow Americans behind, and that goes without saying, right? So, if you're able to give anything, I'll include a link to the Red Cross donation page in the description box, and if you're listening on iTunes, you can visit redcross.org slash donate slash hurricane dash Harvey. And again, anything helps. Don't think that a small donation is too small. I mean, any little bit of money you can send will be greatly appreciated. But besides just talking about the devastation of Hurricane Harvey, I think it's still important for us to state the obvious. Hurricane Harvey is a symptom of climate change. And if we don't act now, Things are going to get worse, and even if we're still dealing with the situation, certainly we need to do what we can to help those affected, but we've got to talk about climate change, and I think that Naomi Klein of The Intercept had a really great article talking about just how important this discussion really is. So she states, now is exactly the time to talk about climate change and all the other systemic injustices from racial profiling to economic austerity that turn disasters like Harvey into human catastrophes. Turn on the coverage of the Hurricane Harvey and the Houston flooding and you'll hear lots of talk about how unprecedented this kind of rainfall is, how no one saw it coming so no one could adequately prepare. What you will hear very little about is why these kinds of unprecedented, record-breaking weather events are happening with such regularity that record-breaking has become a meteorological cliché. In other words, you won't hear much, if any, talk about climate change. This, we are told, is out of a desire not to politicize a still-unfolding human tragedy, which is an understandable impulse. But here's the thing. Every time we act as if an unprecedented weather event is hitting us out of the blue, as some sort of act of God that no one foresaw, reporters are making a highly political decision. 
It's a decision to spare feelings and avoid controversy at the expense of telling the truth, however difficult. Because the truth is that these events have long been predicted by climate scientists. Warmer oceans throw out more powerful storms. Higher sea levels mean those storms surge into places they never reached before. Hotter weather leads to extremes of precipitation, long dry periods interrupted by massive snow or rain dumps, rather than the steadier, predictable patterns most of us grew up with. The records being broken year after year, whether for drought, storm surges, wildfires, or just heat, are happening because the planet is markedly warmer than it has been since record-keeping began. Covering events like Harvey while ignoring those facts, failing to provide a platform to climate scientists who can make them plain, all while never mentioning President Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords, fails in the most basic duty of journalism. To provide important facts and relevant context, it leaves the public with the false impression that these are disasters without root causes, which also means that nothing could have been done to prevent them, and that nothing can be done now to prevent them from getting much worse in the future. So I really couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, hurricanes are nothing new. They've always happen this is not a phenomenon that will go away but certainly the severity for all of the hurricanes that we've seen in recent years it's increased and also the frequency has increased as well so this is becoming a more and more common phenomenon and we have to address the elephant in the room this is happening because of climate change and our unwillingness to act and no matter how much praise donald trump is able to receive based on his response well, that doesn't matter if he's unwilling to actually address climate change because in burying our heads in the sand and pretending like this isn't the result of climate change, then we're going to have more hurricanes in the future. This devastation that we're seeing in Houston will occur around the country and around the world. And this is just one of the many consequences of climate change. I mean, when it comes to climate change, um, more extreme, unpredictable weather patterns will be the norm. So this is something that we have to talk about. We have to address this as a species because if we don't actually deal with climate change in a meaningful way, then Houston is only the beginning and certainly it's going to get worse. We don't know all the consequences that will come to fruition when uh, climate change uh, continues to heat up our planet, but it's not going to be good. We see more, ex more species going extinct. We see increasing ocean acidification which will affect the entire food chain. We see coral reefs dying. We see uh, desertification. This is really scary. So as a species, we've got to come together and address climate change in a really meaningful way. I mean, when it came to the ozone layer, humanity did come together. We had the Montreal Protocol and we actually stopped the ozone layer and was able to uh, heal it. So, I mean, it was, it was increasingly bad. Uh, scientists predicted that it would cause skin cancer in the future and other problems, but we came together and we fixed it. Now, part of the reason is that there was actually a lot of business interests that were on board and behind it, and the reason why we haven't seen much action on climate change is because the business community, well, I mean, especially the oil and gas industry, they have a vested interest in keeping the status quo the way it is. I mean, in keeping our dependence on the oil and gas industry, not only will these oil and gas companies stay in business, but politicians will continue to receive campaign contributions from them. So unfortunately, the only way I really feel like we're actually going to act on climate change is if uh, another in industry emerges and 
challenges the oil and gas industry and this has to be the green industry so i think that it's only a matter of time until we see see a really huge economic boon with regard to uh, clean technology and once those companies become big enough to form monopolies and buy politicians i think that's the only time we're actually going to see change uh, when it comes to u.s policy towards climate change and that's sad to say because it'll take corruption ultimately to get us to respond to climate change in a meaningful way but again please uh donate to red cross if you can redcross.org and certainly to anyone affected in houston please 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 stay safe my heart goes out to you the time period to submit a comment to the fcc to tell them that you want to keep net neutrality is now over but that doesn't mean that you can't still speak out about net neutrality you can still tweet to ajit pai and tell him to protect net neutrality you can still email the fcc and call the fcc and demand that they leave the internet the way it is but one organization they're still really fighting hard for net neutrality and this is fight for the future so this is an organization that organized the internet-wide day of action on july 12th and they are continuing to fight for net neutrality and not just that they're really setting an example when it comes to holding politicians accountable because what they decided to do was on billboards across the country they decided to expose anti-net neutrality politicians as the industry shills that they are and they are encouraging people to call these politicians and ask them why they're siding with internet service providers instead of the people and again these are on numerous billboards so one of them says representative mcmorris rogers wants a slower censored and more expensive internet ask her why want slower more expensive internet representative walden supports centrelink's plan to destroy net neutrality ask him why 75 percent of americans oppose isps blocking throttling or charging internet users new fees why doesn't senator wicker ask him why Representative Kevin McCarthy wants a slower, censored, and more expensive internet. Ask him why. Representative Blackburn took money from Verizon. Now she wants to give internet service providers powers to censor, slow, and tax your internet. Ask her why. And the same exact statement was made about Representative Lada. And another billboard reads, want slower, more expensive internet? Senator John Thune supports Comcast's plan to destroy net neutrality. Ask him why. Representative Groves took money from Comcast. Now he wants to give internet service providers powers to censor slow and tax your internet. Ask him why. And finally, want slower, more expensive internet? Representative Paul Ryan supports Charter's plan to destroy net neutrality. Ask him why. And that's just a few of the billboards they put up. There's actually more. Now, at the beginning of the year, I told you about how Republicans voted to basically sell our internet browser history and this is the same organization that put billboards up to shame politicians back then as well who basically made this vote at the behest of their donors in the uh broadband industry so this is a phenomenal way to hold corrupt politicians accountable because each and every single one of these individuals they're not on the side of the american people again i've said it once i'll say it again nobody stands to gain anything from the abolition of net neutrality the only people who will benefit from this are the ceos of comcast verizon charter centurylink at&t and all those companies so if you're an internet service provider i repeat you should want net neutrality to go the way of the dodo because you will become more richer than you could have ever imagined but if you're an average human being 
like me, like the overwhelming majority of us, you should be fighting this tooth and nail because the end of net neutrality means uh, you're going to be extorted. Small businesses on the internet will be extorted. They're forced to pay bribes if they want traffic to their website to not be throttled. Um, have fun paying for packages now, just like television with the internet. So if you want to get access to Facebook, then you're probably going to have to order some sort of social media package. I mean, we're looking at a completely different internet if these internet service providers get their way. And these politicians don't care because they're industry shills. So by putting their faces up on billboards alongside their phone number, what Fight for the Future is doing here is they're showing us exactly what we need to do, not just with regard to net neutrality, but every time a politician does something that goes against the American people. Because they're not looking out for us. They're looking out for their donors in the industry. And they need to be confronted about that because it's wrong. We live in a representative democracy. You're not elected to represent Comcast or Verizon or Charter. You're elected to represent us. So if they're not going to do that, we need to call them up and ask them why that's the case. And Fight for the Future is leading the way and showing us what we need to do to hold these corrupt politicians accountable. And I absolutely applaud them for it. So I've been very critical of President Obama, but in spite of my criticisms of him, he did do a few things that were beneficial to a lot of people. One of them is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that affects children of immigrants, otherwise known as DACA. So this is a policy that I think was great because prior to DACA, the children of immigrants were arbitrarily punished, and I think that that's not right, but undoing this wrong was a step in the right direction. However, Donald Trump is considering reversing DACA. Now, Jonathan Swan of Axios explains that DACA is a program Obama introduced that shields illegal immigrants from deportation and temporarily gives them permits to work and study in the United States so long as they arrived as children. Now, if Trump rescinds the program, it will affect a huge number of people. At least 750,000 people currently have DACA status. Despite promising on the campaign trail to immediately rescind DACA, Trump has wavered since taking office, saying he feels for these children who were brought to the country through no fault of their own. The Trump administration has continued to issue new permits under the program, and with its future unclear, many families are confused and anxious about their futures. So the question is, if President Donald Trump is feeling surprisingly empathetic towards the children of immigrants and doesn't want to arbitrarily punish them, why is he suddenly wavering on this? I mean, if you already went back on your campaign promise when you've been saying that you would undo DACA when you got into office, but you didn't, why now? Why are you wavering now? Well, on June 29th, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sent a letter co-signed by 10 other attorneys general from conservative states to Attorney General Jeff Sessions in which they respectfully request that the Secretary of Homeland Security phase out the DACA program, warning that they'll otherwise amend an existing lawsuit to challenge the program in court. So, to all of these attorneys general who signed on to this letter, I mean, they're just heartless. I mean, they are choosing to hold a vendetta against the children of immigrants who did not make the choice to move to the United States, but I mean, this became their home, whether they liked it or not, and they're choosing to punish these people. And it's just, it's so mind-boggling to me that they could be show so cruel and with how easy Donald Trump caves to any sort of pressure whatsoever I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he did in fact 
undo DACA after they sent him this letter, especially. So the reason why DACA is important, uh, I mean, it can't be overstated, but really, I think to understand the importance and necessity of this program, we need to hear from someone that benefits from it. So in an op-ed for Vox, Venezuelan immigrant Juan Escalante writes, I am a longtime Florida resident, the oldest of three brothers, and a two-time graduate of Florida State University. I am also an undocumented immigrant who considers myself an American in all ways but one, on paper. My family and I came to the United States in 2000, shortly after Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela. My parents had the foresight to predict the current chaos engulfing the oil-rich nation, which is why they left their family, belongings, and home in exchange for a chance to pursue the American dream. I was 11 years old. My family's hopes of eventually becoming U.S. citizens were dashed in 2006 when we discovered that our immigration attorney mishandled our case. Never mind that my family spent six years and thousands of dollars waiting in the infamous line immigrants are often told to get in, a line conjured in the minds of Americans from old images of Ellis Island, but in today's world does not actually exist. Nor did it matter that my parents had started to build a business of their own and paid taxes. It did not matter, and they sent me and my younger brothers to public school in Miami-Dade and Broward County, and that as young children... This country was our home. No, the only thing that mattered to the government was that my family could face deportation due to our lack of a couple of papers. I was 17 years old when our immigration case crumbled. My life changed swiftly. Anxiety quickly set in as part of my daily routine. Everything that I did, whether it was work or academics, always carried the weight of uncertainty that came with being undocumented. I carried big worries on my shoulders day in and out. Was I really going to school for a degree that I might be unable to use in the future due to my lack of status? Would my savings account come with me if I was deported from the United States? Then there were the everyday threats, fear of getting arrested, detained, and deported for doing something as simple as driving without a driver's license. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which was announced by President Obama in 2012, provided nearly 800,000 young people with the opportunity to live free from the fear of deportation. It also gave to them a sense of freedom, providing work permits and driver's licenses for these young immigrants. I remember feeling a sense of relief when my work permit arrived in February 2013. My DACA had just been approved, and all I could think about was the amount of possibilities that would be immediately available to me. I would be able to go to school without fear of deportation, get a paying job with benefits, and feel like my life had purpose once again. No longer was I bound by the fear and anxiety that plagued me for years. Now, even if for two-year intervals at a time, I would be able to seek out new and better opportunities to improve myself and my community. That freedom that young undocumented immigrants have enjoyed for the past five years has yielded significant gains for the United States. Thanks to DACA, young immigrants have been able to pursue higher education, have started their own businesses, while others continue to work and contribute back to their communities. All these young people are aspiring Americans who are working day and night to make use of their temporary deportation protection to give back to, not take from, the country they call home. My parents took a great risk for my future. It's what families do. My family and I do not have a pathway towards citizenship. Not today, tomorrow, or ever. That is why DACA is so important. And look, I'll just say this to Juan, the author of the article. You've been here since you were a child. You pay taxes. You are an American in my eyes. Papers don't matter. We're all human beings. This is our planet collectively. Uh, and you're an American. So if that story doesn't resonate with you, then I don't know what will. I mean, 
I, I just, I, for me as a humanist, I can't understand why some individuals don't empathize with the struggle. I mean, his family came here so that way their children could get better opportunities in the United States than in Venezuela. If you are looking out for your family, you don't think about borders, you don't think about the political repercussions, you don't think about how, you know, uh, the government will view you, you just think about improving the life of your children. It's the moral decision, it's a good thing to do, and it's admirable. So, to me, Juan already is an American, but he shouldn't have to worry about being deported when he's been here since he was a child. I mean, nobody should have to worry about being deported. Make them citizens. They've been here. I mean, how many undocumented immigrants do we have? 12 million? Upwards of 12 million? Make them citizens. They've been here. They contribute to the economy. They pay taxes. Make them citizens. But part of the reason why Republicans typically don't like this idea is because, well, if you make immigrants citizens, most of which are Latino, who would be voters for uh, liberal parties like the Green and Democratic Party, well, then they might lose some future elections. So, I mean, this is a political decision as much as it is a moral decision to Republicans. So, Donald Trump, I mean, we at least know that there was a little bit of empathy that he was feeling. So, I really hope that these cruel people, like these attorneys generals, don't get in his ear because what he's doing in not ending DACA immediately is one of the few things that Donald Trump has done to actually help people. And if you do this, then you're just continuing with this trend of cruel domestic policies. And look, you've already shown that you are a bad person because your militarism is costing lives abroad. So do the right thing, at least at home, and keep DACA on the books. It's, it's a step in the right direction towards full immigration reform. And these people have to be protected. They're not hurting us. They're helping us. They're contributing to our country and our economy. They're paying taxes. Let them stay. Uh, in terms of DACA, uh, echoing again on what Tom said earlier, final decision on that front has not been made. And when it is, we will certainly inform everybody in this room. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I want to thank you so much. If you've made it this far in the episode, thank you for tuning in. And also, I want to send a special thank you, as usual, to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show to survive and also to thrive and expand. So your support is invaluable to me. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash humanist report and get access to content earlier and also participate in really fun uh, monthly Google Hangout chats with me, which I always enjoy, and a lot of my Patreon patrons and members seem to enjoy it too. So look, I will see you all on next week's episode. It's going to be a gigantic episode. I'm going to have two interviews for you, one with Sarah Smith, who's running for Congress, uh, and another with Sam, Sam, I was going to say Sam Ronan. He's coming up later, but another with Ron Placone. So uh, anyways, I'll see you then. Have a great week.